Today on The Full Life, we're talking about the book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Full Life. Of course, we're the show that wants you to live the fullness of life that Jesus wants for you every single day. And if you're not today, well, we hope you can fill you up a little bit. To start that this season, we want to start with an encouraging word. And today's is coming from Jenny. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone that's watching. Whatever time of day it is, this is the day that the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it. For any of you that know me, that follow my teaching or are a part of our church, you know that I start each and every message I deliver with those words. Because you know what? We actually have a choice. We may not have a choice how our day goes in the sense that we can't always choose what comes at us. We can't always choose what goes on around us, but we can choose how we respond to what's going on around us. The, the Bible tells us to put on the full armor of God that we may be able to withstand. That's in Ephesians. The word for withstand there is antihistamine. Well, what does that sound like? Sounds like an antihistamine. What's an antihistamine for? An antihistamine is something we take not to remove a situation, but to remove our reaction to the situation. And in our lives, there's going to be stuff that's going to go on around us. But we have an antihistamine that we can take that will help us to have the correct action and reaction in each situation. And that action is to expect God to do good things. That's how we rejoice in every situation is that we expect a miracle. We expect good things. I've been teaching my congregation recently about expectation. I've been saying to come to church expecting God to do something, much like Oral Roberts who used to say, I expect a miracle. We should be expecting God to move because what we expect usually shows up, much like George Burns once said when he was planning his 100th birthday celebration. On his 90th birthday, somebody said to him, Mr. Burns, isn't that a bit presumptuous to be planning for your 100th birthday on your 90th birthday? And he said, listen, kid, I learned in life what you plan for and what you expect usually shows up. So live your life expecting good things to happen, expecting miracles, expecting the full life, expecting good to happen in your day. Even if that happens, you can have a good reaction even to the negative situation. So start your day not saying, I hope I get through this day or here it's another Monday or man, it's going to be a long week. Start your day saying, you know what? This is the day that the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it. Make a choice today to rejoice. You'll be glad you did. I certainly am encouraged, Jenny. Thank you for that. And for more encouraging words and more insights, full episodes, all of that, please follow us on The Full Life TV, on our social channels, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter. We've got it all. So follow us for all of those insights every day. And of course, not just Jenny, but the whole panel's insights. And let me intro them now. Welcome back to our friends, Carolyn and Hank. We get to spend time every week. Welcome back, everyone. Hey, guys. Hey, everyone. And today, as we started this season, we really started to talk about 
um, refining our faith. And I believe that was really put on my heart as a, as a real theme for this season was really getting down to what do we believe? And really, can we unite as the body of Christ? And that is a goal I think I share with the author of today's book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. And his name is Lucas Miles. Lucas Miles is a trusted Christian voice who has consistently addressed some of the most challenging topics in theology, politics, and culture. He is the host of Faithwire's The Lucas Miles Show and a co-host of the Church Boys podcast, where he has interviewed some of the biggest names in media, such as Mario Lopez, Jim Caviezel, Kathy Lee Gifford, and Candace Cameron Bure. He's an ordained pastor with over 20 years of ministry experience with involvement in church planting efforts, both in the U.S. and in remote locations, along with his church in Indiana, Influence Church. He's got so many credits. Please welcome Lucas Miles. Hey, thanks for having me on. Lucas. Thank you for hey, being Lucas, here. Hey, Lucas. Welcome, welcome. Hey, everybody. <laughs> okay, well, to start, I want to kind of ask an unfair question because there's so much ground to cover in this book, but can you give us a summary of some of the concerns that you present in this book? I started preaching uh, at 17 years old. I'll be 42 this year, and, you know, I've been doing this quite a while, and over the last, uh, really, probably the last three to five years, I have witnessed, like I think many people in America, a rise of what the New York Times calls this ascendant liberal Christianity, and that we are seeing a progressive version of Christianity that I believe in many cases is an alternative gospel. Uh, and, and we're seeing this constituency, growing constituency, of, of Christians, and at times so-called Christians, who have been impacted by liberal thought, progressive ideology, and in many cases, Marxist theory. And so I really wanted to put together a, a resource for believers to, uh, to be able to address these topics head on, uh, to really be able to help people discern the difference between biblical Christianity and progressive Christianity, and to give people tools that they can take to their local churches uh, to ensure that they're remaining in a, uh, in a biblical faith, in an orthodox faith, um, as they uh, continue their life in Christ. And so uh, that's really the heart behind this book, and it's been... It's been uh, um, you know, just awesome, just sharing this word and getting it out there. Can I jump in here and say, I love what, you know, I, I got to hear you on my brother and sister-in-law's, or my sister and brother-in-law's podcast, Brent uh, and Jody Bailey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, but I actually love your book. I love where you're coming from. Um, mainly this, I love in the beginning, the church, the outline of the church history that you mm -hmm. go into. I'm very much about personal responsibility. And I've said over and over again from the pulpit, I've said many times that the situation, um, some of the situations we're in right now is the responsibility of the church. We can't be like, well, the world's doing this and the mm -hmm. world's doing that. You know, hey, let's take a step back. If we're seeing lawlessness in the world, let's look at the church first. We were the first to teach lawlessness. We taught that Jesus doesn't care about laws, even though he didn't say that. So where is our personal responsibility? And you really address that right there in the prologue in the beginning. You hit that over the outline from where I've seen really the problem, you know, start the 80s, the 90s, that let's just make everybody feel comfortable because we don't want anybody feeling uncomfortable. And that's that's actually not really the gospel. The gospel challenges us. Um, so I, I'd love to kind of go into that a little bit um, more, if you could. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things I mentioned, first of all, thanks for that. And and it's uh, 
It, I think personal responsibility is one of the most overlooked aspects of the gospel. We see it in virtually every single one of Jesus's parables have an element of personal responsibility. And we could trace this all the way back to, uh, you know, Moses, you know, uh, uh, in the Lord, the, the, the choice really he gave to Israel, choose life or choose death, choose blessings or choose curses. And so um, this element of personal responsibility, I think, for the modern church, at least in, you know, uh, more recent decades, is, you know, one of the things I traced was from uh, sort of the birth of the seeker sensitive movement, which, you know, this isn't a uh, this isn't me attacking the seeker sensitive movement. They led a lot of people to the Lord. Uh, I had, you know, my own involvement in, in churches that were affiliated with that over the years. Um, but one of the things that happened during the seeker sensitive movement is there was a real concerted effort to boil down Christianity to uh, only the aspects that felt, you know, most necessary in order to make it easy, as easy as possible for people to have this on-ramp to salvation. And so, you know, a lot of people were saved, but few people were discipled. And right. so uh, right. I compare this in the book to what I call genetically engineered fruit, you know, that you have these, uh, you know, we all love a, a good piece of organic fruit, but, you know, let's be honest, I'd rather eat an orange without seeds in it, right? It's not as messy. You don't have to spit anything out. And that's really what the church did. We created a gospel without seeds, so it was easier to eat, but the problem with genetically engineered fruit is it can't reproduce itself. So this generation of believers that went through the wow. seeker-sensitive movement, all of a sudden were not equipped to be able to disciple the next generation because they lacked a foundation in the word. And so it provided this perfect soil for progressive theology to be planted in, and really this new sort of alternative message of social justice, inclusion, and everything else to go through, and, and really, I think, deceive a lot of people in the process. Wow. There's something that happens when you hear truth. It brings freedom to your soul. And um, I just appreciated somebody speaking the truth back out because what do, what do we as Christians need to be doing to get this truth out now? Have we gone too far that people aren't going to be willing to accept now the word of God without calling it a hate message? I, I appreciate that. And that's, you know, I've had so many people come to me that have, you know, kind of read early versions of this, uh, versions of this book who've just said, thank you for, for saying this, you know, uh, I, I, it's interesting. I set out, actually, I, I was getting ready to write kind of this, this next book and I had finished my, my first book, Good God. It'd been a couple of years since it'd been out. And I thought, okay, I'm ready to go back into something else. I was originally working on a book about influence and I just wanted to share, you know, I've been able to work in, in politics and film and, and ministry and all these things. I want to bring all this together. And I just had this roadblock whenever I sat down to work on it, all these other concepts kept coming to mind. And I just kind of went to the Lord and said, you know, okay, I set out to write this book, but if you want me to write this other book, I will. And um, it, it, I was actually, I took my laptop on a, my wife and I went on vacation uh, and I, I sat on the, the, uh, the balcony at, uh, at our, at, uh, it was actually on a cruise. I sat on the balcony of the cruise ship and I just cranked out the first three chapters of this book really unexpectedly and um, just really felt like that God has a timely word for the church. I think it's an important message that, you know, I, I don't think we're too late right now, but I think we're approaching it. And, you know, of course, as believers, we know that God wins in the end, but I, that doesn't mean that the church in America always thrives. And we've seen the church extinguished in other nations in the past before in church history. And I want to make sure that that doesn't happen in America. And so I really wanted to write this wake up call, you know, to help the church be able to navigate their way back to to really, you know, what I'm calling Orthodox Christianity. Yeah, as as a as a Catholic, I, I, I appreciated your history, too, because you, you talk about how the 80s and 90s were kind of a uh, 
a, 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 a reaction to the legalism of Catholicism in the past. And then you collide with what you say is this postmodern search for really authenticity is what you say in the book, which I, which I love. And it's totally right because we're, everyone's looking for authentic faith now. And so both of those legalism and the consumerism of the church that made it comfortable neither fits that authentic self of that authentic mold of faith because we know that it's not our faith in our bible um, i want to talk about the personal responsibility a little bit more um, just to, to give some biblical grounding on this you talk about it all the way back from the garden of eden so uh, take us back there and talk about where that personal responsibility comes from yeah, you know, I, I make the joke that I that Adam might be the first leftist. You know, he, uh, uh, he, you know, in the garden after after you know, of course, the fall of man, God, you know, approaches him and says, you know, uh, what have you done and and these things and and Adam's response is, you know, it was you, it was that woman you gave me, you know, and and he kind of blames everybody from God to his wife to the serpent and and I and I think that that's really the culture that we live in today. You know, we've really not progressed a whole lot. I mean, I, I'm I'm certainly much harder on on you know the left and the progressive and there's probably a lot of people on the conservative side of the christian spectrum who might read some of the pages in this book and go yeah you tell them lucas go get them but the one of the points i make in this book is that there is uh that i'm not talking about republican or democrat really here i'm talking about about leftist and progressive ideas and it's possible to be a, a person who votes on the right side of the equation but embrace progressive and leftist theology about god and one of those things is an inability to uh, to you know see personal responsibility. If we can't embrace the fact that we are sinners, that we you know this idea of original sin, it is a it, you know obviously very important in the Catholic faith. I'm a huge Augustine fan. Uh, um, you know, I spent the last year reading about two thousand pages of Augustine. I just can't get enough of it. It's my my favorite pastime or you know free time activity. And you know, Augustine really, I mean, he wrote the book literally on original sin. And this is a this is a concept in Christianity that is foundational. But the left and progressive theology is tossed it aside. It really has a belief that there is no sin. And, and it has to share that in order to get some of these agendas across that it's pushing for. I get I get asked this question a lot of, you know, in, in outside of you know circles of, you know, was, was Jesus a socialist? Well, you know, wasn't Jesus? Didn't he support, you know, these various things? And you know, to clear that up, Jesus was not a socialist. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was one of the early ones to say that Jesus was the first great socialist. And of course, we've heard that you know alluded to from everybody from AOC to Bernie Sanders and then some. But Jesus was not a socialist. Socialism is a is a basically uh, uh, it is the 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 state involved redistribution of wealth and also where the state comes in and, and actually takes over industries. And, and really begins, um, you know, uh, kind of usurping control over the market. Uh, and, and what happens in that is people lose their rights, they lose their dignity, they lose their ability to make choices for themselves, whether it be for their health care or how they're going to work. And, and there's a lot of loss of, of personal responsibility and socialist model. As we talked about, Christianity is, has a foundational component of personal responsibility. You know, unless you are a rigid, extreme, radical Calvinist, that does not believe in any sort of form of free will at all. Every single other denomination, uh, the entire spectrum of Christianity believes in personal responsibility and that we have a role to play in our own salvation. Certainly, it is God who is the one who saves, but we 
play a part in that in either receiving it and either, you know, if you're if you come from certain backgrounds, maybe responding with some sort of, you know, the, uh, acting upon the provenient grace that was offered to you. Uh, and, and so socialism removes choice. It removes personal responsibility. It places all the onus sort of on the state to make that control. People lose power. And, and ultimately what happens, I think, is that, you know, uh, what we're seeing is that essentially uh, the goal of socialism or the goal of the state or the leftist state, we'll say it that way, is, is not to keep a separation of church and state. It is actually to get a, a church that is subservient to the state. And that is what I fear is coming. We've already seen that in places like Canada here very recently in the news and other and other nations around this world. And, and I think that America needs to wake up and be aware of the dangers of socialism. Are yeah. there any dangerous, um, are there any dangers of capitalism? Um, because I think that while we can instill personal responsibility, um, I don't know if I would agree that that's one of the cornerstones of our faith, um, even salvation, the spirit convicts, you know, Jesus died and the father saves. So I would say that's like a little piece that we play in it, um, which my Calvinist friends will appreciate. But um, we basically operate here in the West with a system where the rich is getting richer and under a free market, quote unquote, free market capitalist system where a lot of minority groups have suffered. So how do we advocate that? Um, so for me, what is the difference between this, this free market capitalism that you seem to be lifting up when I can actually give you 400 years of how it's not looked like Christ either. Sure. No, I think that's a great question. I think it's a very important and real question for people. Obviously, mm -hmm. what we saw this last year in 2020, you know, it started off, um, you know, I think with some of the, the the riots and and you know the violence that we had in places like Portland, obviously around the country, it started off with a very righteous cause. It, it's important, I think, to identify a couple of things. You know, first off, my my interest in writing this book. Is, is I'm not coming at this from an I'm not an economist I, I'm not somebody who is necessarily here to you know solve every aspect of uh, uh, you know injustice in society. What I want to help people do is I'm first and foremost I'm a theologian who is helping people go back to Orthodox biblical Christianity. So within uh, is capitalism a per perfect system? No, because it has imperfect people in it. And and so this is not a book you know uplifting capitalism. Although I do support the free market. I, I support, you know, it, it's a combination of a free market and and a nation that has laws based upon Judeo-Christian values that produces the best environment or the, the best, uh, uh, um, you know, opportunity to be able to experience, you know, we'll call it the goodness of life on this earth. You know, you can't argue. I mean, I've traveled to 22 countries. I've been to, you know, I think four different continents. I've seen a lot of the world. I've had guns. I've had. I've been in you know Africa with AK-47s pointed at me, uh, you know, at, at stops on the road and being interrogated alongside the road. I've been you know in Mexico and 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 you know had issues with cartel and everything else. And I can tell you that from all of my travels, I've never seen a place that operates like America. And to have a place that is rooted and based upon Judeo-Christian values. Have we done it right? Have we done it perfectly? Of course, we've not done it perfectly. And I think it's important that whether you're on the left or the right, that we remember that we are not, it is not our job to create a utopia here on earth. It is our job to proclaim the gospel of God's grace, to bring as many people as we can with us into eternity. You know, Augustine's city of God. He talked about, you know, the city of God and the city of man. And one of the problems that we're seeing with progressive ideology 
is that, um, you know, it, it is really, I think, oftentimes an attempt to build this utopia here. It's Jesus, the great social organizer, mm -hmm. rather than Jesus, the, so, the, the savior of the world. And so, you know, um, to, if I can continue kind of speaking to this, the, the oppressed, you know, element of this, um, I, I've spent a you know, fair amount of time studying uh, what is known as liberation theology. So liberation theology, you know, for the audience, I'm sure some of you are aware of it, you know, more so is uh, liberation theology started, um, you know, with a, uh, a priest in, uh, in South America who was a Catholic priest who really took an element of Christianity and an element of Marxism. His last name was Gutierrez, I believe. And he kind of, connect, you know, combined these two things together to form what became known as liberation theology. So you have this sort of branch that came out of South America. Uh, you also have a branch of liberation theology that kind of developed here in the United States uh, that's, that's commonly referred to as black liberation theology. Both of these have this in common, although there are some differences between them. They would see that the primary objective of the gospel is to help the, the, uh, the oppressed class. As believers and as Christians, there is an element of that that we hear it and we go, of course, you know, that sounds awesome. Like, sign me up. Right. Until you really start understanding what it's saying. The Bible says that God is not a respecter of persons. And it's really important that we keep that in mind. Because anytime we begin to elevate a certain people group over another, mm -hmm. uh, then we are putting, and, and especially when we say that God is elevating certain people groups over another, we are creating a God who is actually a respecter of persons. Basically what Marxism, you know, what, what a Christian version of Marxism says or liberation theology says is that God respects the poor or the oppressed more than he does anyone else. And I can't find that in scripture. I can, I, I believe that, you know, Christ died for, I mean, we see him minister to the Roman soldier who's oppressing people, as well as, you know, the woman who's caught in the act of adultery, who's getting ready to be stoned. You know, he ministers to people wherever they are, where he finds them, and that's where he ministers to them. Does this mean that God doesn't care about the oppressed? Of course not. As the church, we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We need to minister wherever we can. But the goal of the, uh, uh, the, the really the purpose of Christianity is not to uplift the oppressed. It's to uplift Jesus. When Jesus is uplifted, I believe we have a society that experiences less oppression. Have we done it perfectly? Of course not. And we need to look for ways to be able to, you know, uh, I think reach across the aisle with all people groups better um, but, you know, I, I think it's important that we don't embrace something that's rooted in Marxism in the process. Um, one, two quick questions on yeah, that, because I think we're diametrically opposed on this, like diametrically. <laughs> um, one, I would say, how does that how does that jive with Luke four when Jesus himself, you know, this isn't Marxist. Jesus himself said the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to, for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that's one. And then two. Um, again, um, American Christianity founded on Judeo-Christian values, I think that is primarily um, language of people who've been in power. Because since the very beginning, um, Native Americans, African Americans have said, you're not founded on Judeo-Christian values. Um, you read Frederick Douglass, for example, he's like, I like the Bible. I like Jesus. This white people and their Jesus, it looks nothing like him. So I do think that like, while it's unfair to say this is one aspect of, I, I think personally, this is one aspect of capitalism, so it has to be Marxist is bad. I think there's just as much bad with capitalism. And we have 400 years of this free market approach that hasn't benefited people um, of color and women and oppressed people. 
But we also have a Christianity that I don't think we can say firmly is founded on Judeo-Christian values, or at least not in practice, maybe in word, but definitely not in deed. Um, so yeah, so how do we jive it with Luke 4? And again, how do we separate it from uplifting an America that doesn't really look like the kingdom at all? Yeah, no, certainly. I, I think those are great questions. You know, I've been spending some time. I don't know if you've read James Cone before, who, uh, you know, is I'm currently reading his book. It's a, I think it's roughly the 50th anniversary of his book, uh, The Theology of Black Liberation. Uh, you know, honestly, it is one of the most disturbing books I've ever read in my life. It's calling for violence. It's calling for firebombing. And I understand um, that that there is a, a hurt that is involved in certain communities, whether we're talking about various minority you know, groups that exist, that I might not be able to fully understand or, or speak to in a way that's going to feel, you know, like like I'm uh, like I have heard the pain that's there. And let me be clear, Jesus wasn't white. Jesus didn't have my skin tone, uh, you know, but this is it's really important that we come back to Scripture and not to all these alternative philosophies. My goal is here not to promote, you know, Marxism. It's not to promote capitalism. It's, it's actually to, to speak that there's issues on all of these sides. We have to come back to Scripture. But I believe that a lot of people are making these presuppositions about Scripture because they're looking already with a lens that's slanted towards leftist theology. There's also a, a, an active revisionist uh, attempt uh, to, rev to revise Scripture. Chinese Communist Party right now is working on a version, a translation of the New Testament, where Jesus is the one who throws the first stone to kill the woman caught in the act of adultery. This is what is happening today. And that, you know, we are making agreements, I think, with people not realizing how this theology is really working towards an anti-biblical, anti-family, you know, Marxist pursuit. And, and it is it is a it is one of the, the, the major, uh, I think, uh, enemies, you know, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, in the world today. I was listening to Bodie Bachman the other day, and he did a message on a brokenness. He's a great apologetic. I'm sure you've heard of him. But he was just talking about that if we're not careful, it's the words that are being spoken. That now we're getting to the point that we don't want people to feel uncomfortable, that we're making the word of God, that if it makes you feel uncomfortable, then, oh, it must not be right. And he says, folks, the word of God is meant to be not only full of grace, but also a sword. And let me maybe speak. So, you know, I, I, I want to be fair, you know, across the spectrum here, because this is important. And this is one of the things I really set out to do with this book. You know, yes, the book has this nice provocative title of the Christian left, how liberal thought has hijacked the church. And, you know, you might walk away from that going, if you know, if you don't read it, you know, is he only addressing issues on the left and any, you know, is he going to talk about any of the problems on the right? Or do I even think there's problems on the right? And the answer is, of course, there's problems on the right. And, 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 you know, there's not, you know, just because, it, you know, Christianity is neither left nor right. It's truth. And, and I think that anytime we slant it, there's trouble. And, and I'm not, again, I want to be clear that this is not a political statement. It's not a voting statement. When I talk about left and right, I'm talking about, you know, you, you have maybe a pharisaical mindset, you know, in, in sort of this extreme fundamentalist view. And you have sort of this progressive view on, on, on the, you know, this left side. Um, you know, first of all, our words matter. Uh, you know, how, how many times have you heard somebody say or, or a meme on, you know, social media every oh. You know, every uh, demon, every Democrat is a demon rat, you know, or some, some stupid thing like that. You know, and we have kind of these this language that goes out there that doesn't help anybody. It's it's divisive. It's destructive. It doesn't create any sort of bridge. It doesn't create any sort of on ramp for conversation. And so, you know, I might disagree with a couple people on this panel. I might we might all find something. I bet we could all find something we disagree with, you know. 
And, and you know, here's the reality. But we can sit here and say, I, we love each other because we are in Christ and we are, you know, we find that love in Christ. Now, if I love someone, I'm going to operate with grace towards them, but I'm also going to operate with truth towards them. You know, we've all, we all, you know, have the one friend that will tell you when something's stuck in your teeth, you know, and that's the friend that you go, I know you love me because you were willing to tell me before I did this interview that something was stuck in my teeth. Everybody else just walked by me but you spoke the truth to me. Now, obviously that's a, you know, that's a, uh, you know, sort of a ridiculous example, but the reality is true love is willing to speak truth, or you could say it this way, true love is willing to speak truly. And so, you know, we have, I think, uh, a lost version. Uh, uh, we've lost the identity of love in our culture today. And, and love is codependency. Love is, is, is entitlement. Love is agreement. Um, but to say something that's true, you know, um, that that's that's rejected. I call this Herodian politics. What we see is that, this, you know, uh, King Herod in the Bible loved to listen to John the Baptist preach until John the Baptist said something that he didn't like. Right. And the moment he said something he didn't like, you know, he, he throws him in prison. Now, here's the amazing part of the story. And it was actually Catholic priests that shared this insight with me. So I got to give him credit is that we were talking about this story. And he goes, and Lucas Notice what happened. He goes, Herod wasn't willing to do the deed himself. And he relied on the youth of the generation. This girl that came and danced before him and was the one who asked for John the Baptist's head. He, he used the youth of the generation in order to accomplish the devil's purposes. And so, you know, here we have this really, you know, this perfect picture of how the state functions today and really how socialism or Marxism functions. Uh, um, it will, you know, uh, the Marxism loves the church as long as the church will agree with it. But the moment the church speaks out against it, it will imprison it. It will silence it. And if it needs to, it's willing to use the youth of America to cut off its head. I, I did a series called Christ like a few months ago at our church. And one of the things that kind of propelled that was that idea that if you are a Christian, that means your love means everything is acceptable. Everyone is embraced. Now, everyone should be embraced, but not everything. They, we should be able to use our voice. But the problem is we've allowed the world to define what love is. The world's theology of love is do what thou will. We know our theology on love is, is I mean, our theology in general is not my will, but thine be done. Right. The only time you hear do what thou wilt. The only scripture that ever you know mentions that is actually from the Satanic Bible. It's the very first verse, and the only commandment in the Satanic Bible is "Do what thou wilt." But that is the definition that's being ascribed to love, and you know I think that that's a very difficult thing, and it's a really hard balance because we want to walk with love, and that's what I addressed in this Christ-like series because I had spoken out against something that I felt was ungodly, and I had people responding, "Well, Jenny, I thought you were a pastor. Is that really Christ-like?" And it was like, well, actually, when you look at what Christ was like, and that was my very first you know, uh, message in the series was, what was Christ like? He did speak out against sin. He did speak out against unrighteousness. Now, we know, of course, the woman caught in the act of adultery. He did not throw the stones at her, but he told her to go and sin no more. And so that's, it's, that's that balance that I think we're missing. And I, and I think part of that comes from... Um, what you mentioned in, again in the prologue of the book, and you mentioned it earlier today about discipleship. We stopped discipling people. Yeah. So people don't know anymore. And I think a very big part of discipleship falls into this whole love thing because discipleship, 
equals discipline. That's what the word is. And people don't want to be disciplined because if you discipline me, you don't love me. And my father taught me when I was very young, you know, when he would, every time he, we would get in trouble and we would get spanked, he'd always say, I'm doing this because I love you. You will understand it one day. If I did not love you, I would not discipline you. And so I think that that kind of goes hand in hand, this whole like, well, we have to do what the world says is love. So we've gotten away from dis discipline. Therefore, we don't have discipleship. Um, you know, so I'd love to, I mean, I don't know if I'm just talking to talk or if you want to share <laughs> on that some more. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I encourage people to do is to really spend some time looking at the early church, you know, the first, you know, uh, um, you know, four centuries after Christ. And it's I love reading, you know, uh, uh, books and testimonies from this time period. We have so many original sources, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, virtually almost immediately after the New Testament closes. You know, we have people like Clement from Rome and Ignatius and uh, uh, Irenaeus and, you know, others, Jerome and others that, that have, you know, just these amazing testimonies in history. And one of the things that you see is, first of all, a you see a love for man and a love for the gospel that I think is rarely exhibited today. And and I think that, you know, we have a, uh, a real desire, uh, um, a selfish desire, I think, as a modern society to to puff ourselves up, to be the ones who are right, to be the ones, you know, uh, to always have to contradict, you know, uh, uh, you know, this, the wrong opinion as soon as we hear it. And I believe that there is a right and a wrong way to address mm -hmm. things, you know. And so I, I think that as we look at this, first of all, as Christians, um, you know, we are to be an example of Jesus Christ on this earth in such a way that causes other people to take note and to to see our lives and to, you know, desire to ask questions of us, to, to you know, to come to the Lord. 2,000 years ago, great sinners used to run to Jesus. 2,000 years later, sinners are running from the church as fast as they can, you know. And, and has Jesus changed? No, of course not. But there's something about the way we're communicating the gospel that has highlighted judgment and condemnation. I am speaking out in this book against issues. And I believe that those things need to be said. But I'm not speaking out against these issues with judgment. The fact of the matter is, apart from Christ... I have nothing going for me. There is not one. Uh, um, I really tried to avoid um, taking a stand in this book uh, about anything to, to do with what I would call um, my own personal heightened morality. The fact of the matter well, is, you know, I, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I don't live this life perfectly. I got, you know, I have issues that I've worked through throughout my life and some that I'm still working through. Um, but I'm not here testifying to Lucas's morality. I'm here testifying to the truth of the gospel, even if that at times rebukes my life. Yeah. And so, you know, we have to decide if we're going to make the Bible first place in our life. The other thing that we see in the early church is we see people who are willing to give up their lives. And and I think that this is something that, you know, coming back to maybe some of the conversation earlier, that we would be hard pressed to put some of the modern theologies and modern philosophies of this world uh, uh, up against the early church to see the way in which, I mean, you know, you have somebody like, I believe it was Ignatius, who he had friends in Rome who had the ability to probably pull some strings to make sure that he didn't end up in the amphitheater. And he, he pled with them. Whatever you do, don't do me any special favors. I am I am ready to give my life and to be found worthy, you know. And he actually talks about you know that he longs to have the the lions crush his bones with his with their teeth so that he can just for some moment share in the sufferings of Jesus. And you know we hear we're so we are so unworthy compared to that sort of mindset in our lives. 
And, you know, anytime that something happens in our life, if somebody passes us over or we don't get what we think we should get or or any sort of problem, you know, we're the first to say that's not fair, this or that. The reality is the early church had they were literally dead to themselves. They had no desire to puff up any sort of I need this thing for my life. They were there to help others and they were there to be a witness for Christ. I believe if we actually started living that out, the whole world would take note of that. Uh, but instead, we've puffed up self on the left and the right, and we've chased after our own ideas as opposed to returning to biblical concepts. And so, you know, I really hope that this book can provide a roadmap back, you know, for Christians to be able to read some of the, his the history, you know, deal with some of the philosophy, you know, really engage on this, maybe on a more thought provoking level to help find some of the answers they're looking for. The thing that encouraged me about your book is it's really calling us back to the word. That is the only place that we're going to find the truth. And for me, it is the moral compass. Um, there is moral absolutes, but it's not because I said so or because somebody else said so. It's because it's the word of God. And mm -hmm. I think until we come back as Christ followers, that we really know this word again. So when we hear people that are saying something that doesn't match up with the word that we go, wait, right. You know, right. That's not right to me. Or that didn't, that doesn't cause, I mean, everything you're saying right now, the word is not about my comfort. Right. I, I feel like we are leading people so astray. Come know my Jesus because he's going to make everything right in your life. All your problems are going to go away. Where'd they get that gospel? Everybody thing I read, it says, pick up your cross and follow him. The more I surrender and give up me, the more freedom I find. But when I try to balance that out where I'm a little in the world, little in Jesus, it's like, oh man, I'm just exhausted. As soon as I just go all in where it's nothing about me anymore and it's all about Jesus, freedom, freedom. I'm not expecting anything other than just to walk in freedom. And so that's what I was getting from your book is just let's get into the word. Let's know the word. Let's know the truth and let's it let it be our moral absolutes. And I, I think that's the only hope we have for tomorrow. I have so many things because there's so much in this book. I could do five days on this book, but I will try and <laughs> try and hit them quickly. Um, uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the concept of entitlement, which you mm. talk about in the book. And I think both the left and the right have some issues with entitlement. So go, let, please go into that. Yeah, entitlement, it's interesting. So in, in the book, I talk about in a chapter um, called The Three Temptations of the Church. Uh, right. And uh, it, it's it's really interesting. You know, we see the temptations of Jesus. Of course, we have the temptation to turn stone into, you know, to bread, uh, you know, the temptation to, uh, you know, to, you know, to throw himself off, you know, the uh, uh, the temple and, and have, you know, the angels, you know, catch him. And then the temptation basically to bow to the devil in order to receive all the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, there's a deception that God acts based upon man's necessity. And throughout all of scripture, we never see God act on necessity alone. It's never it's never something that he manifests. Just because somebody has a need, God doesn't respond. There, we've of course we've seen people all around us every single day. We, you know, uh, that have needs in their life that you know we don't see any sort of you know maybe operation or them turning to the Lord for these things. See, God acts based upon faith and not necessity. And so, you know, this idea of entitlement, I think, is something that, as you mentioned, we certainly see it on the left and the right, uh, and and I think that it ties in very closely to the rejection of original sin and sort of this innocence of man. I love my brothers and sisters that, you know, are conservative Christians that are out there. Um, but I get frustrated with them 
<laughs> yeah. And and look, I I you know I'm I'm a brother among them, but I get frustrated with them. And you know, one of the cycles that I talk about in this book is what I call worry, anger, apathy. And this is a problem on the right. And and basically what happens is um, when somebody on the right, let's say, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, for instance, a, a father or mother of a child, you know, an adult child, and they see their son or daughter starting to drift towards, you know, progressive, you know, uh, um, ideas or, or, you know, issues, perhaps they're, they're questioning their gender, perhaps they're, they're getting into a relationship, you know, with somebody who doesn't know the Lord, perhaps they're, uh, 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 you know, they, they've, uh, you know, gotten involved with some sort of, you know, alternative philosophy of the world. And, and so what happens is they, they first, they start with worry and they worry and they worry and they worry. And what worry does, see, worry is not a, is not a, a, a fruit of the spirit. What worry produces is it typically produces guilt or manipulation as the tactic to try to change people. And so uh, when they are, when they are in that phase of worry, they begin kind of just pulling on that person through guilt manipulation. Well, you know, you don't know what this is doing to me and I feel this way. And, you know, all of these things. Well, of course, that doesn't work very well. <laughs> so what that produces eventually is the person kind of throws up their hands about, you know, this worry thing and then they get mad. And then it starts, you know, this anger. And we've seen this, you know, of, um, from the right, you know, with angry tweets and, you know, uh, Twitter wars and, and you know, memes and all these things that are just hate producing, you know, poking at people. And, and, and I think really something that as Christians, you know, I'm not interested in having a lot of involvement in. And I have friends that, you know, are probably behind making some of these memes, people I've brushed shoulders with. Uh, but for me personally, it's not a place that I want to spend my time. I, I can't imagine Jesus is out there, you know, encouraging people to make memes. And, and so, but, you know, this is, this is something that I think that if we're going to follow Christ, Jesus told us to expect, you know, people to hate us, but we need to, we need to not give them additional reasons to hate us, you know, through anger and apathy and all these sorts of, if they hate us for the gospel, so be it. But, you know, I don't want it to be because, you know, I'm snarky or because I'm argumentative or because I'm something like that. If they want to hate me for the gospel, that's fine, but I don't want to give them an additional reason to hate me. Uh, other than manifesting the love of God in my life. I think part of it too is we have to admit as well that we have earned some of this hatred uh, by not following our Jesus. I think that's a key part of it. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, we're a country of quote unquote manifest destiny that stole land from people and killed them, you know? We're a country who believes in a free market where we treated black people as the free labor. You know, we are a country who's earned all of this and we've done this quote unquote in the name of Christ, you know? Um, and so I do think that part of the true gospel and the truth is actually returning to Jesus. Um, I, and I quoted Luke four before, but I do think that we need to stop making quote unquote social justice opposed to the gospel. Um, because again, this is what Jesus said God called him to do. Um, and even if you look at Matthew 25, this is something God also holds us as Christians to be accountable for. You know, um, in Matthew 25, when he separates us, it's how we love. Um, and you can even argue Jesus becomes all those things in Matthew 25 on the cross. Um, so I do think that's part of it, too. The gospel isn't just um, and I think that's one of the great critiques. You know, you talked about James Cohn earlier. Um, yeah, I think you can critique Cohn up and down, but I think he's helpful. And I think one of the great critiques that black people becoming Christian in this country said was like, we don't necessarily believe in that Jesus you're talking about. And I think we needed to hear that. And we needed to understand that, like, it's not just about heaven. You know, like, if you're making my life hell on earth, you're not looking like Jesus. And 
Jesus himself said the kingdom is coming and it's already here. So, yeah, I think that's also part of the gospel is that we need to stop making social gospel an opponent to quote unquote true gospel, because I think Jesus actually calls us to change the world and to love the world, you know? Um, and I think sometimes our politics or even our theologies um, or our ideology ideologies pull us all away from the truth of the gospel. So, yeah, we got to take ownership on, on both ends. My last question that I would like to say is um, we talked about moral superiority um, and, and that is a proponent, yes, the, that I hear on the, the left side that this is the moral way to do it. What my um, thought is, and I'm just playing sort of, I don't wanna say devil's advocate, but I'm just playing for, for clarification for people who aren't believers and they hear that we, should, we are founded on Judeo-Christian values, we should base our society off Judeo-Christian values. As a believer, I agree. I'm 100% on board with that. But in a democracy that is not, uh, that is much larger than that, how do we navigate that, if that's a fair question? Because how do we not sound morally superior in saying that this is the way we should, we should live? Um, you know, in, in, in regards to this issue of moral superiority, uh, it, it's an interesting thing, you know, um, we, first off as Christians, you know, we're, we're clear that, you know, the gospel is we need a savior. The whole nature of Christianity is me saying that I am not morally superior and that I need a savior. If you're not a believer, maybe you're morally superior to me. Maybe you don't need a savior. I don't know. You know, I mean, of course, theologically, I can't accept that, but you know, in, in practice, I'm saying I need a savior. That's why I cry out for Jesus. And that's why I, I claim him my, my, my life, that I that I have received him as my Lord and Savior. So I'm far from morally superior. Uh, what I believe, though, is that when we come to Christ, uh, that he makes us the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that we become co-heirs with him, uh, that he, you know, that we become seated with him in the heavenly places, you know, that we, we have a, a transformation. We become a new creation. Um, you know, that's not, in my mind, elitist. That's not uh, something about superiority. It's because it's an invitation. And one of the things I point out in my book, The Christian Left, is that, that the gospel is simultaneously the most inclusive message in the world and the most exclusive message in the world. And this is something I think people struggle with. See, Christianity is inclusive in that it's available for all people. You know, again, unless you're an extreme Calvinist and you believe that God, you know, chose this person and damned this person, which is, is a complete butchering of Romans 9 through 11, uh, as well as, you know, uh, uh, you know, our Old Testament passages they would pull from. Uh, but unless you believe in some sort of extreme version of that, what we believe is that the gospel is available for all people. Paul writes in Timothy, you know, saying that, that you know, it's God's will that all should perish and none should come to a, or excuse me, that, that none should perish and all should come to a knowledge of the truth. <laughs> flip those around there a little bit. And, uh, um, <laughs> And, and so, you know, we see that it's God's will for all to be saved. He's inclusive in that sense. But yet the gospel is also exclusive because only those who come by grace through faith, who come through this gate, this narrow gate, you know, this one way through Jesus himself can experience, you know, relationship with the father. And so does that make the gospel elitist? I think it makes it the most inclusive and the most exclusive, you know, and, and, and you know, message on the planet. And truth is typically found in the paradox. And if you want to know if something's true, you usually have to find a paradox in order to, uh, to uh, you know, ensure that. And that's my, you know, my concern of what we're seeing a lot of progressive ideology. There is no flip side of the paradox. It's, it's like a, 
you know, it's like a guitar string that's been cut on one side and it's just flopping out there. It's being progressive for progressive sake rather than on a destined, you know, on a mission to, uh, you know, arrive to a destination, which is Christ himself. Progressivism has no desire to ever reach a destination. It is just want to progress. And the next generation, next generation will progress further than we've progressed. And the next generation after that will progress further than they have progressed. And but for Christianity, we are progressing with a purpose. We are progressing into the image of Christ. That is the that is the destination. And when we arrive, we will see him as he is face to face. And that will be, you know, perfect bliss for all eternity. Um, but, you know, it's important that we distinguish this message and realize that the gospel is not about moral superiority. It's about the superiority of our God. And we have to continue pointing people to that. Now let's talk about the fullness of prayer. For me, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a fast moving person. You know, I got my hands in a lot of different things. And so I have to really be intentional to kind of find that time. Uh, you know, to spend with the Lord and talk with him. And, and you know, uh, oftentimes it's kind of an as you're going sort of thing. I, I tend to spend, you know, uh, I usually like to spend the first hour and a half of my day reading, thinking, talking to the Lord. Uh, I got a I got a Doberman that's, uh, you know, kind of my 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 best pal. And, you know, uh, I'll go out with her a lot of times in the morning and, and do a, uh, you know, do a long walk. And that's a time for me just to kind of still the world. It's early morning. There's nobody around. And a lot of times it's just me talking to the Lord. Uh, and so, you know, that's a place where I hear, it's a place where I ask questions, it's a place where I meditate on things that I'm listening to or things that I'm reading. Uh, and that's become a really a cherished time, you know, in my, in my prayer life. Um, I think that, you know, it's also, I've really tried to embody this sort of pray at all times sort of mindset. And so there's, there's certainly concentrated times where I'm, you know, intentionally quieting, sitting down, praying. Uh, but there's a lot of times where I'm driving in my car talking to Jesus or I'm mowing my lawn talking to the Lord or, you know, my wife and I are having a conversation and there's an element of prayer that's inside of that, you know. And, and I think that, you know, if we're really going to master the pray at all times, um, you know, it's something that we really kind of have to take as literally as possible. And so it doesn't mean that we discount those those uh, concentrated you know moments. But I really want to just learn what it's like to fellowship with Christ, uh, you know, every single second of the day. And, and I don't do that perfectly by any means, um, but it's certainly my goal. There are so much more insights in this book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. That's the book. Lucas, thank you for all the time today. We really appreciate that. Thank you Absolutely. for being with us. Hey, you're welcome. It's been so good on the show. And yeah, if anybody wants to find out more, they can head over to lucasmiles.org. Uh, they can order the book there and, uh, and pick it up and uh, would love to uh, connect on social media as well. As Lucas mentions in his book and Paul writes in the Bible, we are to remain vigilant, speak with grace and truth, and demonstrate self-sacrificial love. That is our Christian witness. And it's not easy. In fact, Jesus said the exact opposite. It's pretty hard. But I think no matter where you come from in the Christian tradition, we can agree that that is our calling. And we'll have more conversations on different topics that we can refine our faith even further next time on The Full Life.